and C just to keep you here for an hour listening to my stale jokes. Uh, shall we take a vote on whether to go with B or C? Anyway, I'm Victor Raskin, uh, a, a faculty member associated with Sirius and uh, uh, associate director. Um, it's my um, honor and uh, uh, privilege and pleasure to introduce my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Paula DeWitt, uh, who will talk to you on what you see uh, on the uh, screen. Uh, Paula, in my experience, uh, uh, one of the rare uh, breed of people who combine actual uh, um, uh, research uh, capabilities with the ability to uh, get the funding agencies to understand uh, why they should be paying for it. She is one of the most successful grant getters in a very competitive environment. Let me just say that. Uh, um, when we met a couple of years ago here in Indiana, and he, she uh, successfully recruited me to consult for um, a company that she was associated with uh, uh, then ontological uh, uh, semantics, I was greatly impressed, she didn't know that, by the fact that she had been funded by the Department of Homeland Security. Until then, I had never met anybody who had seen a cent of uh, uh, money from the Department of Homeland uh, uh, Security. Uh, Polly also happens to be uh, a CS uh, graduate. Uh, uh, she got her master's degree here. I will not tell you when. Uh, and uh, then continued uh, to, towards a PhD in computer science with the emphasis in natural language processing. She has been uh, involved uh, in information security for any number of years, and all the grants I have been uh, referring to are in the area of information uh, security. And uh, with that, I will just uh, give the floor to Dr. DeWitt. Thank you. Welcome. So before I talk, I kind of like to find out who my audience is, uh, because there's nothing worse than kind of having someone come in and say, you're teaching to people who have to be there, right? So most of you are engineers, computer scientists, okay? Uh, you have an interest in cybersecurity? You want to hear really boring technical talk? Because you're not going to, okay? Because I've always been interested in implementation. Um, and so if you notice anything, maybe, you might notice I changed my title on the airplane coming over last night because I'm also always kind of thinking. And so one of the things I've, why I'm not in academia, why I am more in the commercial sector is because I always like to say, how are you going to implement it? So I look back through some of the abstracts and some of the talks you've had, and they've been very interesting about specific algebras for security and these other things. And they're... They're very focused on a technical area. But what I want to give you today, today is a bigger picture, because most of you aren't going to be in academia, I predict. True? Are most of you going to go in the commercial world? OK. And the commercial world runs on what can you do? What can you implement? You know, you might come up with a great algorithm that cuts this and cuts that and is beautiful and will get you all kind of accolades on the academic area. But if it doesn't have a real-world implementation and some kind of benefit, it's not going to work. So today I want you to kind of just, I want to, I want to be this like an idea thing. I want you to kind of stretch out from what you're thinking about security. Um, this is, describes work in process that I'm doing. Uh, and when I say work in process, I live in San Antonio, Texas now. San Antonio, Texas is home to Air Intelligence Agency and will be a second home for the National Security Agency. And I am writing a book 
with a uh, NSA trained super hacker who basically has a whole lot of experiences in things he can't tell me about, which he occasionally drops like, well, you know, when we broke into the North Korean computers or when this happened or when that happened, all right? And basically, he came to the conclusion after 20 or 30 years in the, in the field that he doesn't see enough of people understanding what it means to have secure systems, is one, and two, how to implement secure systems, okay? Most people think when they're talking about secure systems, you're talking about the computer or the network or the communications, right? And that turns out to be only a small part of it. It's the most fun part if you like technology. So first of all, I changed the title because my title originally said system, and I want to think of this as an environment. And what is the environment? Okay? And that environment is everything. It's the physical, it's the human, it's the administration and policies, and it's the computers, the networks, and the communications. Second of all, obviously, their stakes in cybersecurity are getting higher. On 9-11, we had someone with a new paradigm fly planes as missiles into buildings. Now, what if a terrorist could sit across the ocean and break into our Wall Street and bring down the confidence in the American banking system right, and never have to go through our borders? Or what, if, what about mass identity theft? You know, it used to be somebody would hit you up in a bar. You know, when I went to college, you'd go to a conference and you'd hear these stories where somebody got to talking to them and found out their name and where you went to school and some other information from you and then stole your identity. Well, that was real time consuming. Right? Now you can steal identity on 100,000 people at a time, usually by the weakest link in the security system, which is people. Right? I leave my laptop, you know, suddenly you, know, you have, what, 10,000, or uh, I think it was 10,000 uh, current and active duty soldiers uh, whose identity was stolen. Another big motivation is compliance. Do, are you aware what SOX is? Sarbanes-Oxley, okay, HIPAA. Right? So, and, and uh, I'm currently, I don't know, uh, Victor didn't mention this, I'm currently going to mid-career redefinition and, and going, getting a law degree. And part of what, um, part of my motivation is that there's not enough technical people in the legal field who understand technology, but also there's going to be a huge liability from this. You know, if your records are stolen and there's 100,000, I just, somebody was just telling me about a case here in Indiana, stole 100,000 records and there's been a class action suit filed at $5,000 a person. Um, then there's the privacy issues, right? We have Hewlett Packard, incredibly smart people, who said, oh, gee, I didn't know that was illegal. You know, I didn't know that you couldn't pretext and get somebody's phone messages. If you uh, read the Wall Street Journal article on it a few weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was actually part of this in, uh, internal investigation from Hewlett Packard, made a comment that said, they knew more about me than I did. Okay, and they did that by running new technologies. So basically what I want to talk to you about today is kind of connect security to the needs and the requirements of the real world. Give you some things to think about. If you have questions, ask me. Okay, if I'm boring you, tell me. Right? And as I mentioned the kind of work that I'm working on now, I want to bring up two key concepts. We've recently identified six aspects of security that we are trying to drive into this overarching framework, and I've mentioned them to you. The people, which is the weakest link, through no fault sometimes of their own. The, uh, what I call the administration, how you push paper, how you have policies, how you have procedures. Um, the physical, the buildings. You know, we all sit in buildings and we think we're all secure because we've got our secure networks, and yet there's been cases of people under the floor, there's been cases of listening devices, we're in a window, we're being monitored. Um, and then a new uh, notion of what I'm going to call a framework to put this together. 
Okay, so first of all, I'm hoping what you're thinking is, what does she mean by a framework? What does she mean by integrated? What does she mean by environment? What does she mean by security? So when you leave here in an hour, I kind of want you to be thinking of what constitutes a true security and a truly secure systems or environment. And I tend to use the term systems and environment interchangeably, but I mean the whole enchilada kind of thing. All right? The physical infrastructure is critical, the people in it, how those people do their work, and then the computers, the networks, and the modes of communication. Okay, so let me go back. Victor was talking to a group of graduate students I was talking to earlier today, and I, uh, one of them asked me how I could be so successful in my research career, and one is I'm always bringing ideas from different forms together, and about three weeks ago I had this insight. So a long time ago when I was doing research for the Air Force, um, there was this big focus on developing integrated systems, and I'm not even sure that's in the vernacular anymore because I think that problem's been chewed up and spit out. And I used to trick, I taught database and software engineering for uh, several years, and I used to trick my students, right, and talk about, well, what does it mean to have systems, integrated systems? And I'd, I'd give them the idea of, you know, that means you can pull things from disparate databases or you can understand your data or your processes, and my elliptical dot, dot, dot there, it means a lot of things. So my trick I used to play is, so you have records of somebody, John from Massachusetts, and Ronald from California, and Lyndon from Texas, and Joseph from Georgia. And what do we assume those people are? President. Presidents, all right. Except there's never been a president named Georgia, from Georgia named Joseph, right? But they could be world leaders because there was a guy named Joseph Stalin from a country, Georgia, okay? So my little trick was, don't make more out of the data than you can. The goal at that time was to provide data at the right time at the right place to the right people. If I heard that once in the 80s and 90s when this was a big research focus, I heard it a million times. I wish I had a dollar for every time. And there was a way to solve that. So what I'm talking about today is let's go back and revisit some of those concepts and take the opportunity for what I call now is integrated security. Okay, so again, what does the environment mean? The physical. How do you have first secure physical uh, infrastructure? Let me give you an, an idea that I want you to kind of play with a house. You know, we all have our idea of a home. We have our loved ones. We have some prized possessions, right? And so let's say we wanted to make our home really secure. What's the first thing people usually do? They put locks, okay? Well, you get to thinking, maybe that's not secure enough. So why don't I put a fence around it? Okay, I mentioned working with this guy who's NSA trained. When you go to his house, it's what I call a compound. He has a wall around it, he's dug down, and he's put vines along the top to make sure that there's nothing that can get over that wall. Okay, so we put a wall around it. Then what else do we do? We might get some Dobermans, right? Pretty soon we want to make sure that environment's secure, so we uh, put a security system in. And pretty soon our friends don't come by anymore, right? Because there's something about coming past the Dobermans, past the wall, and into the house. It doesn't seem warm and friendly anymore. And one day we come home and our locks don't work. Somebody's put glue in them. So we hire a locksmith to change the locks, maybe upgrade the, the security system. And two days later we come home and our house has been broken into because someone that we assumed was to be trusted was actually the person who violated the security, right? the locksmith. And this is what happens 90% of the time in computer security breaches. It's usually the people. It's either people we trusted or it's people who don't know any better. Okay? So this is what I mean by the integrated secure environment.
right? Now, security is often what I call in the weeds. You know, we got our passwords, we got our firewalls, we got our um, uh, encryption, and that focuses on the electronic aspect. So we want to advocate a true integration between the electronic, which is much more controllable, and then the other aspects of the physical, which includes, again, people, processes, and the like. So this was my analogy of the house. And as I said, most of our threats turn out to be insider threats. And somebody's going to have to keep, me, keep a watch on the time because I don't have my watch. Okay. Okay. So I've mentioned this, which I'll be going back to. So why are we looking at the physical and the electronic? Do you realize there's kind of a breakdown there? Right? Once we go from the physical part of the environment to the electronic part of the environment, we, we seem to have a disconnect because the electronic, of course, is very controllable, very predictable. Um, the physical side can be seen, but only to a point. As I've said, there's more and more cases of them finding, uh, there's actually one case of a government agency. This is hard to believe, and I cannot tell you all the details, but there were two men who lived under the floor for two weeks. Okay, they made physical accommodations and brought in food and other things to take care of their biological needs. Right? Now that system, particular group, thought that their systems were secure. The whole time they were being monitored from underneath their floor. Okay? Computer security isn't physical, and it also, but it can't be readily observed. But as I'm saying in the physical, sometimes it gives us a false sense of security. We've all had the thing where we, we're walking down the street and we see somebody we don't like or kind of gives us the heebie-jeebies so we get to the other side of the street, right? There's a certain level of familiarity. Then there's a certain level of familiarity where people you might let into your house or you open the front door and you talk to them at the front door. And then there's a certain area of familiarity where you let that person into your house but maybe not into all the rooms. Security is about the same kind of thing. It's talking about boundaries around the access area, all right? And what I want to talk about when I talk about security totally is not only prevention, but what happens after, right? Can we keep, can we keep people out? But how can we tell if we haven't kept someone out? How many of you have ever traveled with a laptop and left it in a hotel room? Okay, and you come in that night and there's your laptop, right? And so you feel, feel pretty secure that that laptop hasn't been Violated, right? True? How security you feel? Put a number on it. 100%? 99%? Why do you feel that way? Why do you think your laptop's been, not been messed with? Well, let's say you belong to a little company that we'll call it the, the Purdue Next New Thing. You've developed this rocking technology that's going to put Google out of business. And you and your guys get together and you always go to a certain city and work with your researchers or your venture capitalist. And every day you go out to dinner and maybe go play some racquetball and you leave your room unattended for two hours. And you come in and there's your laptop. All right? They have broken rings after rings of maids in hotels, paid $100 to inform certain people that the guy from Purdue Next New Thing Incorporated is staying in that hotel and what his schedule is. Someone comes in, either puts a secret account on or copies the hard drive. You wouldn't, this is not an exception. This happens almost every day, okay? So you can't tell when you're secure. So how can I tell if somebody's broken in? And then how can I tell if it was done? There's gonna be one case I'm gonna show you in a few minutes where uh, Citibank got $10 million in 1994. $10 million was nothing compared to the business they lost, first of all, one, and two, they couldn't figure out. 
how the guy got the money. Okay? Then you put in, so you say, well, but you know, if you have processes, we're going to have this in place. We, we've got these policies. We have passwords. You know, we have this and that. Well, then that goes to the problem that you have is, okay, I sometimes forget to lock my front door. You know, I, I live in San Antonio, which unfortunately has a little bit of a crime rate. So I got a gated community, and I always walk out and leave my front door. And the other day I went out on my patio and realized the door's been unlocked for about a week. Right? I thought it was locked. I never checked it. Or there's also been cases where you do your physical security and you think, you think it's secure, but how do you know somebody's not hiding? Just like somebody hiding an account on your computer. So when I got to thinking about how do you create a really secure environment, I went back and I started looking at some classic cases. And I analyzed these cases, and I analyzed them according to the six aspects of security. So VA. 2006, you all know this case, 10,000 active and retired military records when equipment was stolen. Why? An employee, a person, violated a policy, took that laptop home, his home was burgled. Where were the breakdowns? Physical breakdown, personnel breakdown, administration, and the computer. Do you see that? It was stolen. It was stolen by a guy who should have known better. He broke a policy, and the computer was stolen. Um, you know, the, the official media story is that the computer was, was uh, gotten back. That's probably 98% false, and even if it did get back, the data's probably been copied. DOE, are you familiar with this one, where the national secrets were stolen? It was an insider hack. They could never prove it definitively. Again, there was a personnel issue, there was an administration issue, there was a computer issue. All the secure computer network and communication policies and procedures and hardware and software in the world will not prevent an insider from putting files on an anonymous FTP site and letting somebody pick them off. Okay? Uh, I won't go through all these, but I, I say the traditional network hack for the Navy, just meaning that, gee, that's just the old-fashioned communication and computer. This is the one I was talking about from Citibank. They lost $10 million. They made a mistake. The story got out. They had over a billion dollars of money pulled the true impact wasn't the loss. It was what happened next. Let's see if I've got a few more. Uh, CNN 2002 shut down the website. I don't know if you've heard of the stories in the Air Force. Got a website hacked and replaced with pornographic pictures about seven or eight years ago with a comment that says, this is what the government's doing to you. Uh, I read a couple of years ago that there was a little internal fighting going on with the Israelis and the, pa and the Palestinians hacking each other's websites and doing kind of, you know, uh, mean things in the name of their religion. USC, lately, I think you've heard this story. I believe that uh, they, they got all the professors' emails and uh, their tests and exams. Right? And then I gave you the made in the hotel room story. So I want to I flip to something because now I want to tell you how I'm approaching this issue. Before I do that, let me do a reality check. Do you all see what the problem is when we talk about cybersecurity? And do you agree that that's a problem, that that's an issue? Okay. How many of you have ever felt like you've had your data accessed and you, you, you just got a bad feeling or you couldn't figure out if it had really happened? So has anybody had their identity stolen? Okay, and you know what it's like to go through, right? Um, so I said I pulled out something from the... Um, 80s, and in the 80s when I was working on integrated systems, I found the notion of something called the Zachman framework, and I'm putting his up to give him proper credit. 
John Zachman retired from IBM many years ago. And I don't know if you can read this. And what we're trying to do in our current work is organize a framework. Okay, and the framework's going to give us a roadmap for truly implementing security. Our idea is to produce a book that anybody can read. If you go to Barnes and Nobles, you can get a book on network security, you can get a book on encryption, you can get a book on this. But we have yet to find one book that says, here's how you handle the whole environment. So Zachman, and I'm not saying we're going to follow this directly, but the problem is in my framework, one is I haven't got it fully developed to show you. Two is it's three-dimensional and I couldn't, not a visual graphics type person. But basically what Zachman realized was take the what, how, where, who, when, and why. Okay, and then look at that, that the problems with integration was that you couldn't show the whole enterprise type system. And so if you go down the rows, you go from more general to more specific. So he starts by saying, what are we talking about? At the top level, what do we mean by data, right? The next level, our business model, how do we handle data? What does that mean in relationship to how we do our business? When we go down, as we go further down, we get more in the technical weeds, okay? We go through the system and the technology and the like. There's a couple things you quickly tell you about this. First of all is what the framework gave us was an organizing, overarching way to look at different levels of detail at once. Second one is we could change things and understand some of the impact in the system. So you could change some of your technology, right? Or you could change maybe how you do your business and keep the rest of it intact. And when people began to understand this, then they began to understand that when I talk about data and I'm at a management level, talk about data and you're a system designer and you talk about data and you're an implementer, we're talking about three different things. So part of what we're trying to do with our work is come up with this kind of architecture, but in a, for integrated security. Oops, I got to, sorry, got to go flip back. Okay, now what are the advantages of what I should just showed you? One, it's dynamic. The world changes, right? It could be that somebody comes up with an encryption algorithm tomorrow that is unbeatable. We can plug that in the technology part. It could be that the nature of my business changes and I can change that at a higher level. It could be the way I view the visibility of the impact, okay? What happens? What happens when there's a failure in the people mode, let's say? How does that affect, uh, or a failure in the technology mode? Where does that fit into the framework? So part of the advantages is we can add and modify technology. We can incorporate new ways of doing business. We can add and change business rules. And we have achieved what I'm hoping to be is more of an integrated security in the environment. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? As I asked you before, most of you are engineers. If I ask you to give me an assessment for how you would do security on a computer or a network or communication protocol, you could probably give me a good definition, right, or a good process. How do we do it in the softer areas? How do we do it when we're talking about people? Uh, have any of you, you are familiar with the name uh, Kevin Mitnick, correct? The hacker. Have any of you read any of his work on social engineering? Okay. You know, where he was a 12-year-old, started, got started as a 12-year-old street, street car, smart kid that 
could get free bus rides wherever he wanted, and he developed this expertise. Um, how do you figure out that? That's not something you'd write up, like you're going to write up a communication protocol for computer networks. Right? So basically, the way you get started, and I'm just giving you this to kind of give you the idea of what I mean by a roadmap and framework, is we can begin to assess the inventory of where we are. But when we talk about the inventory, we're going to talk about, and I've got this in a later slide, specifics, not only in the electronic, but in the physical. And then we ask ourselves, when we've got to know where we are, what are you trying to do? You know, what's required for either compliance or secure networks? Um, then you come up with how am I going to get there. And to do that, you develop alternatives. And this is something I think it's hard to understand when you're a student and easier to understand after you've had about 10 years in the working world. Sometimes you come up with a great idea. You can make a system 99.9% .9 secure, and your company won't buy it. Why? Because it might cost them a million dollars for what they consider to be a small amount of risk. So they make the computer system 98% secure, and they save themselves a million dollars. All right. So when we go through this roadmap, we're asking ourselves, okay, where are we? Where do we want to be? How much is it going to cost us? I think there's still a virus that gets released around Christmas that runs on desktops. It used to be, and it basically shut your desktop down. It didn't shut your laptop down. Basically, it said it's Christmas Day, go home, and then it turned your system off. Okay, didn't do this on laptops. Apparently, there was somebody who really thought everyone should be at home with their family on Christmas. Now, you know, on your laptop, maybe they felt like you were sitting in front of the Christmas tree with your laptop, right? Every year, there was a new variation of this. Right? Companies would look at it and say, okay, how do we prevent this? It would cost too much money, and they'd say, okay, we accept the risk. If you're going to be here Christmas, this may happen, so... It's a cost-benefit trade-off, all right? And then you basically choose your solution, implement, obtain feedback, repeat, okay? As you get in the real world, you're going to find out these aren't step-by-step -step processes. These are more what I call phases because you're going to be changing your policy the same time you're developing your cost alternatives. Now, let's, let's kind of, I want to hear from you guys. Let's kind of relate this to what, what you're thinking or where, what you want to do, right? Do you see this kind of go on as a roadmap? Does this make sense to you? What do you see your part of the world kind of fitting into this? Do you see anything wrong with it? Please, if you see something wrong with it, you might give me an idea that helps my book sell better when it's written. Where, where does the human uh, factor fall into this roadmap? That, that's a good question. First of all, all through it, but second of all, mostly with your policies. Okay? What does that, that uh, take into account? Let me go. Uh, let me go. Let me go one more. Okay. It says personnel. Okay? Because, unfortunately, don't take this personally. We're all people, but we're the weakest link. Okay? This is, if you read, you know, five pages of Mitnick's book, you get this, right? I find out your name and your account number for the gas company, uh, or he could, and within a few minutes of talking to different people on the phone, he's got access to your credit history. All right? Did any of those people know they were giving out information? It was going to breach security? No. Because they gave out a little bit of information. Now, what's, what if I give out your name and account number? Well, what if I give out your name and your address? Well, what if this and what if this? Okay. Here are the threats and vulnerabilities that we've looked at so far. Um, 
you can read the list, but basically, you know, who, who is that person? What do we know about them? You know, where are they from? What country are they from? There's one theory that says the, the, uh, some of the break-ins that have occurred have occurred of naturalized citizens who unfortunately have had their family members back in their home countries threatened. Uh, in process and out process. That basically means you bring people into the company and things are usually rosy and then when you ask them to leave, there's a reason why they try to get you out of there as quick as you can, as they can. On one hand. On the other hand, how do they know you haven't already planted something? Uh, what's allowed and not allowed in the workplace? You know, can I have my cell phone? Um, what am I going to do if I take pictures in the workplace? What am I going to do with them? Uh, who works there? Who's cleared? Do I understand those policies? This is what comes into policies. Do I understand what I can discuss with you? Or you? Or you two together? Did you have another question? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Where does the, um, when you say credential checks and, and uh, personality assessment, does that mean you have a profile of psychological or, or uh, deviance of whatever, however you want to define that? Do you, is that what you take that into account when you, like, this person may be falling into this category of, of uh, whatever, a threat, so you know how to analyze that? Profiles, right. Um, in some jobs, yes. First of all, I recommend that you always do a credential check. I had something interesting happen to me several years ago. I had my own company in Texas for about 12 years. And this guy came in, since you're all Big Ten, and gave me a resume. And, he, and everything, I mean, this guy, his resume was so great. It's like, I'm, not, I'm, I'm flattered you're asking me for a job, right? I noticed he got a bachelor's and a master's from Ohio State University. Does anybody pick up on what's wrong with that? You ever meet anybody, maybe because I lived in Ohio for a while, that calls it Ohio State University? The Ohio State University. I picked up on it immediately, and I did a credential check on him and found out it was bogus. They'd never heard of him. Okay. Um, yeah, any company should do that. But also a personality assessment, we do that when we interview on a low level anyway. You know, do you look me in the eye when I talk to you? You know, are you talkative? Uh, what kind of stories are you telling me? When I interview people, they, a lot of people have said, yeah, you didn't give me much of a technical interview. That's because I got people to do that. I'm trying to find out how you're going to work. That's on one level. A second level is you do see a trend now of more and more companies doing personality assessments or profiles. Okay. Um, and again, it has to do with some levels of different security on jobs you're going to do. I had a great guy work for me once. But if you looked up the picture of the word computer nerd in the dictionary, it would have had his picture and fingerprints. I mean, this guy was like totally non-social, just the, the, the Dilbert stereotype, right? I, I heard him one time yell, and the person he yelled at was so surprised that she broke into tears, right? And he told me a sad story that he went to volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club, and they didn't take him as a volunteer because they considered his behavior style deviant. Okay, they kind of looked at him and said, yeah, I'm kind of wondering why you want to be here, kind of thing. So that's kind of a soft assessment, right? Uh, did you have another question or follow-up? Uh, I, I actually have a question. Yes. You are getting there. But I'm surprised that financial processes are so low. Can't Tristenberg has a passion for Agatha Christian always and for trying to guess what happens. She says that she follows the money. 
and 99% of the time she guesses uh, what it is. So I wonder whether your financial uh, processes assess things like uh, the person's needs for money, that is lifestyle and stuff like that, or whether you just uh, process the money coming in and out of his or her account or whatever. Well, there's a couple things that would stand out. Um, years ago, probably before most of you guys were, you know, even knew that computers existed, they broke a major computer hacker. And he was doing one of those classic things where you round it off the penny, you know. And the way they got him was his wife was spending way too much money, <laughs> you know. And it was totally, somebody was in his house thinking, how does somebody live like this, right? Now there's, this, uh, there's quite a bit of financial, um, for probably 25 or $40 on the, on the internet, you can do a, you know, find out if anybody's got judgments, things about them, find out what kind of car you drive. I mean, there's, they can find out a lot and just say, does that kind of fit in the normal parameters? to figure out that somebody is spending more money than they uh, legitimately make. That's true. That's true. That's true. They hide it on a cash and basis. And there is always uh, the Aunt Mildred excuse. She died and left a million dollars. Yeah. I've been looking for an Aunt Mildred for, for a while. Yeah. I think you're going to see more of this, though, the more of this electronic integration to do that. Um, I want to find out what kind of car you drive. You know, if you're a 22-year-old struggling Purdue student and you're driving a Lexus, kind of raise some eyebrows. There's only so many Aunt Mildreds in the room or in the world. Um, and there is quite a bit of financial information you can actually pull from people now. I saw a hand or... Yes, sir. You go to a job for clearance, yes. You have to declare. They look in your financials frontwards and backwards. They have to explain. Uh, I had a friend that that happened to, in fact, and they came back and said, how did you manage a down payment when you were between jobs? Where did you get the money? And he, he was, like, surprised they even picked that out. Yes. Well, Don, do you, do you sign over access to your tax records, or do they have direct access to the IRS? I doubt they, I, th I think it's probably against the law to have direct access to the IRS tax records, but um, you probably sign over where they can do a credit history on you. That, that's what I was going to say, that you realize that the first thing that happens, you sign uh, basically, you, you denounce your human rights. Yes. And I'm not No. Uh, I don't want to spend a, a, a lot of time on this, but one of the things we overlook is the physical, the vulnerabilities in our physical infrastructure. Um, I, my friend that I'm working on the book has one of these little electronic devices, and wherever he goes, he scans for drugs. It's kind of funny, you know, in a way. But um, uh, and we've come up with, and I've just kind of summarized it here, a whole list of things to check for in the physical environment. And you think, this can't happen, right? I lived in Austin, Texas for eight years. One of my friends worked for a company called Austin Information Systems. And they found a van, a guys, guys in a van with listening devices that were so sophisticated, they were picking up everything that was being said in the offices. You know, uh, 
So let me get through here. Basically, all security is different boundaries. This is what I was alluding to when I said about people you let in your house. You know, people when you have your house and you go from the locks and you go to the fences and all this. And what we're struggling with when we're putting this framework together is when you take the boundary issues across those aspects that I talked about, across the communication, the physical, the people, and the like. And that's why I don't have a framework to show with you, but basically our framework's going to be more three-dimensional. And I don't need to go through all this, but um, this is on that same thing. I give you give me your name, I'll Google you, right? I mean, that's a that's a no-brainer. And there's certain things I can find out. I didn't know some of the papers I had written were published in Russian until I Googled my name one day. Uh, but then there's this next level, so you're kind of going from the, the open air to the fence, where people can start picking up your habits. And there's if you file a lawsuit. You know, there's a lot of things in public records if you know where to look, if you got a judgment when you buy a house. Right? This is one of the things banks do, is they go through and check because they want to make sure their customers uh, aren't showing up on bad lists. And then there's that next level, again, going through the building analogy. We're out, we put a fence, we let some people in our front door that is more secure for you, your finance, your contracts, where you owe the IRS, and the like. Now, what's this all about? You know, you might be sitting there thinking, this woman has a PhD in computer science, you know? First of all, it's a true systems engineering approach. It's, we're trying to come and bring a lot of stuff together. Second of all, it's interdisciplinary. Uh, this afternoon I met a fellow, and I, his name escapes me from psychology, and he started talking about how they're trying to come up with ways to come up with better passwords. Yeah. Right, and human factors. And so it's interdisciplinary. There's certain psychological things in here. There's profiling. Um, then there's a little bit of philosophy in here. You know, when you, when you do a policy, you know, how much of it makes sense? There's no point in implementing a policy that people don't want to follow. You know, it'd be like getting up in the morning and somebody saying, put on your left shoe first and tie it halfway and put it on your right shoe. People don't see a reason for doing it. They're not going to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm using the notions of framework, as I said, that I got from Zachman. And then ontology, where you can bring sense and meaning to the information. Okay? And this is one of the things that I think Victor and I hopefully someday will collaborate on, is, is how to understand this whole process based on ontological approaches. As I said earlier, our goal is to develop a roadmap for a truly integrated environment security because the stakes are getting higher, okay? The risks are getting more sophisticated. And basically, the issue we're struggling with now is how do you, how do you organize it? How do you organize it into something that's going to work? Because I like to see things implementable and things that people actually follow. Now, if you're interested in cybersecurity, I've put this up here. Developing this is obviously extremely interesting to me because learning how to understand the interrelationships inner and determining the impact of vulnerabilities across different aspects. All right? Uh, blackout, August 2003, I believe, in New York City. Right? Did, if there's, a, there's a wonderful report about that. I don't take a few minutes to tell you. What caused the blackout? Does anybody know? Tree limbs in Ohio. Right? Some tree limbs weren't properly treated. Guy pulled the wires down. The people in Ohio didn't have their data up to date. They were getting phone calls the way the power grid works, where power was being sucked in from other places. People were calling them saying, there's something wrong with your system. They were looking at backup data, saying, no, there's nothing wrong. And it, the impact, they probably had at that point two hours to fix the problem. But the impact, uh, the time decreased. And by the time it hit New York City, they had like 19 seconds. The guy looked at the screen and said, we're in trouble. And the lights went out. What was the impact? I was in New York City the weekend before, luckily. Uh, 
Cell phones? Your cell phone towers go dead. It's hot. It's dark. Where do people go? They went out. They stood in the street. Now, take that kind of attack on our power grid and integrate it with 9-11, where you couldn't have gotten a fire truck one block down the street. Or let's hit the power grid in an attack, and when lights go out and people are hot and they're in the dark and they're not in great moods, they go outside to get cool in August, and you set off a dirty bomb. Okay, so we've got to start looking more at the integration of the physical with other uh, attacks on our security system to understand the impact of vulnerabilities. Let me tell you, uh, Victor mentioned my work with Homeland Security. That scenario scared him. Okay, that scenario said, what if we have a synchronized attack like this? You will have mass casualties. Didn't scare him enough to, you know, not have problems with Katrina, but it scared him. The other thing I'm interested in is, if you're familiar at all with something called certification and accreditation, do you know what that is? Okay, it's manual processes. I have a whole list of rules, and I want to find out if your organization abides by those rules. So you give me your policy manual, and someone sits and reads the rules and looks to see if you've defined it. Incredibly time and labor intensive. There's some great companies in D.C. that make a lot of money having room full of people reading documents and then saying, okay, we're going to certify your system. Now, it doesn't audit them to see if you're really doing the process, but it does do that. To me, that's a wonderful opportunity for a computer approach using some of Victor's ideas. Okay, let's stretch our imagination the last few minutes. What are the next frontiers? We didn't use our imagination enough. Okay. There were plenty of warning signals before 9-11 that somebody could use a plane as a missile. There was an attack on the Eiffel Tower. The pilot said, in French, hell no, I'm not going to fly in the Eiffel Tower, okay, 10 years before. Um, this is the kind of mindset we need to get when we talk about security. It's a different perspective. You can no longer think about, well, I think I'm secure, so it's okay. I'll wait till something happens. Now you kind of have to use Andy Grove's words, you know, only the paranoid survive. Title of his book, the guy who started Intel. Um, Hello. It's to think. Hello. Yes. Yeah. So Tom Clancy wrote a book about uh, someone crashing a plane into uh, uh, the Congress. Uh, so quite quite a few number of years before 9/11. So surely that scenario was on our radar. That that's true. That is true. And it was also on our radar in World Trade Center because that uh, not a plane, but there had been a bomb. Yes, I agree with you. In fact, a friend of mine at the Pentagon in the 90s wrote a, a report about, if you, how many of you have been to D.C. And, and the subway system, about how easy it is and the, the physics of the subway that if you put off certain kind of bomb or certain kind of gas, you could shoot down the subway. And his story is, they said, we don't want to think about this. Okay? So your slide is incorrect then, right? Um, yeah, you could say that. Well, thank you. Also, there have been kamikazes in the uh, right. World War II. Right, right. Um, but to get back to my point, if you never thought about what might happen, when something happens, you won't be able to act and react rationally. After 9-11, the city responded very well with some problems, not having radio interoperability between the firemen and the police. But when they had a default plan from Y2K, so they had thought about something that could happen, and even though that didn't happen, it gave them, in the, in the face of a disaster, uh, a way to act and react rationally. 
Okay, I'm going to leave you with this. As I told you earlier, I'm now pursuing a law degree in San Antonio. And the reason is, the big thing was, well, several reasons, but one of the reasons was most lawyers don't understand technology. Okay, and we're coming into a more technical world in two ways. One is the federal courts are now going electronic. So there's a process in place that you're going to be able to use web-enabled things to, to file. That's one thing. The second aspect is, as we get into issues of privacy, getting your tax records, getting your medical records, determining if you're fit to be an employee based on information, there's going to be, um, I think, a lot of interesting questions in the gray area of law. Most law is based on statutes or what's called common law. There's not a good common law case basis right now for a lot of the privacy issues. This is a quote by Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I picked up off a law blog um, that he alludes to this. So I kind of wanted to end with that because I hope uh, kind of spurned some thinking. Any questions? Yes, sir. No. No. I, I will tell you one thing he's told me, so I don't think he would mind my repeating it. There were 11 trained. The program was shut down in the 90s. There are a few of his friends that whereabouts are unaccounted for. One of them, they believe, is working for the Russian Mafia, and one of them was actually involved in a hack in Europe that stole, I think it was Airbus Designs, and my friend is actually the one who caught the guy. Yeah, and an industrial hack between some kind of competing program. But his story is there were, were some small number of them, and a couple of them they don't know what happened to. Kind of like what happened in, uh, you're old enough to remember the Friday Night Massacre in the CIA under Carter. They fired a bunch of CIA agents. And, you know, you're a CIA agent. What are you going to do for a job? You can't tell people what you do. So a couple of them went to work for countries in the Middle East. Edwin Wilson was one. Um, but no, he didn't write that book. Okay, other questions? A question for Mayu. Yes? Do, do you know of any big companies that, that where the employees are told every time they sit down at their desk to make sure that the cable going from their keyboard actually hits the computer before a keylogger? No, but is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I mean... You're talking about these plans and the physical and the computer and the technical layer and how they meet and how you have to defend against it. And I agree with everything, or the philosophy at least of everything you said. But yet, I mean, even companies I know that, that say they planned against this, it seems to me that there's like, you know, $100 hacks that would easily make them susceptible to, to multi-million dollar attacks. Oh, exactly. You're 100% correct. And I, I'm just wondering, I mean, I assume you consult for a lot of these companies, whether you've seen anything, I mean, I guess that's my curiosity is, that, you know, I can get people's passwords for systems just by doing this uh, easily. I mean, as a faculty member, when I'm at, say, the, the school, public terminals at the school, I always trace the terminal uh, cable because I don't see why I should trust it. But I think well, I'm a paranoid What's security. to prevent somebody from just picking it up from a wireless communication device? I don't think our students are that sophisticated. Okay, let me tell you <laughs> something that did happen. Uh, College Station, Texas, home of Texas A&M University in December, a bunch of students went to do Christmas shopping and their debit cards failed. One of them had found out that his bank account was $8,000 overdrawn. Okay? There was a little bit of panic. 
they couldn't figure it out. And what they honed in on is that no one from Wells Fargo or Bank of America was hacked. And so they kept thinking it's these smaller Texas banks. That was complete coincidence. They went down the rabbit hole. Office Depot. You went in and bought something. It was around finals, right? They swiped your debit card. Somebody was sitting out in the parking lot intercepting those transmissions. It was an unsecure network. All the money was taken out in Russia within 48 hours. Okay, but, but, but they're using a wireless transmission system. I thought you were implying someone was using a system to pick up the magnetic variations in the cable. I, I think that, that can be done. That can be done. I'm sure it can be done, but I don't think that's... As, I mean, I think it's a lot easier to, to, to buy scanning equipment for a wireless transmission than to... to um, uh, it, here's, the deal. here's the deal. What's the stakes? If I can get yeah. debit card numbers, I'm going to do it. Yeah, well, well, if I, I can get a password to a student account, yeah, eh, you know, depends now. Right, but I guess that's my point. Companies do have big stakes, and you know, there's a lot of things I can do with passwords, and it doesn't necessarily involve stealing information. Right. Yes, I agree. I agree. Most people are motivated by the money, though. We have we have one more question at IU. All right. Yeah. So uh, I know several people who've gone to work for the NSA. And I wouldn't describe any of them as super hackers. So could you help to describe how the NSA goes about recruiting uh, highly competent people? Uh, most of them come out of the military. My friend. How does the military go about training highly competent people? Um, <laughs> I can do this one. <laughs> the military, I'm kind of a little bit confused by your question. I, I assume you mean it seriously, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, good, good people generally, don't, good technologists don't like waking up at six in the morning. Um, some of the and, best and, and technologists I've met have been military. And I have a little bit of bias, and I guess it's because I've mostly worked with the Air Force, but most have been Air Force. And then they retire out of the Air Force and they go to NSA. Or they go from the Air Force to NSA. So it's, it's people they're making themselves, right? They're not getting them from, they're not getting people who are already skilled hackers. Uh, no, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never worked for an SA. They might be getting them both, but my, my uh, and, and of course this might be biased, and I'm currently in San Antonio, which is where Air Intelligence Agency is, but most of them I found have grown up in that environment. Thank you. There, there were attempts, however. Uh, in um, uh, the uh, late 1990s under President Clinton, there was a famous uh, meeting where there were suits, suits, and suits, and one of them belonged to Gene Spafford uh, here. And there were two unkempt guys, remember, uh, Randy, who were sitting with those people, and they were hackers, they were famous um, yeah. uh, hackers. So an attempt was made to recruit those. I don't think it was followed up much, because probably uh, the amount of trust is not very high right. uh, there. Right. They're going to come after you, I, I think I would be. I would think they would be highly suspicious if you kind of send them a resume and say, hey, I'm a super hacker. Can I come work for you? Right? Well, thank so, you very much. Okay, thanks. Thank you.